Welcome to The Skinny for Friday, May 12th. I'm Mitch, Mitch Perry, reporter of the Florida Phoenix, joined by my co-hosts, fellow reporters Ray Roa with Creative Loafing and Ben Montgomery. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Good to be here. So uh, lots to talk about in the next hour. We're going to continue to debrief on the just-completed legislative session later in the show with reporter Catherine Varn from the USA Network, USA Today Network, Florida. She wrote a very, I would say, searing article last week called Trauma Session, How This Year's Florida Legislative Session Reopened Wounds, Left Scars. Uh, and also, perhaps we can get into uh, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, because really, is this going to be it, folks, a year and a half from now? We're already going to know what these two people are going to be, our, our presidential candidates. Uh, I'm hoping not. Um, but we also are going to have a guest that we're hoping to get on the next few minutes, but I don't believe we have her just yet. So we're going to segue and talk about a couple other things. So um, here, Ray Roa. Uh, Ray, you let's talk about there was an FBI raid uh, earlier this week, Monday at the home of uh, Tampa City Council member Lynn Hurtak uh, and her husband, Timothy Burke. Uh, talk about what happened there. Yeah, so that was on, on Monday. So Monday afternoon, <clears throat> um, we start hearing about this and I start looking into it. Um, I get a call from uh, Justin Garcia, who used to work at Creative Loafing, and he's at the Times now. And he's telling me how he came upon uh, the, the same similar tip. And he actually was able to walk over there and he's like, hey, we're about to publish this story. And he kind of starts walking me through it. Um, and I'm like, okay, I know what's going to happen here. Um, and um, I was hoping he had something that maybe we didn't, uh, but he did not. So, um, you know, the story is, um, according to the FBI, uh, Monday, May 7th, agents conducted a quote-unquote court-authorized search um, at the home of Timothy Burke, who lives in Old Seminole Heights. Um, his wife, who he lives with, is uh, Tampa City Councilman Councilwoman uh, Lynn Hurtak, and um, just in full disclosure, uh, Burke's byline has appeared um, on CL. He's written some stories uh, for us and 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 some other things. Um, <clears throat> initially, Hurtak declined to comment. Um, we reached out to the city. Um, Adam Smith uh, told Creative Loafing that the city was not involved. Um, and that he was also not aware of any outreach from um, Burke or uh, her tax lawyers. Um, and what happened, um, according to Burke, who was speaking to Justin, uh, the FBI came in about six in the morning. They were there until about four-ish in the afternoon, seized all his electronics, computers, um, things like that. And, and uh, if you're not familiar... Yeah, it might be important to, to <laughs> understand like what it is that Tim Burke does, because... Um, <clears throat> Uh, it is journalism, right? But it's it a is. new kind of thing, and he's kind of been a pioneer in terms of what he does. It might be the only d guy who does specifically what Absolutely. he does, yeah. which so, I'm not sure what exactly what it is. As, as, as somebody, so I'm 37 years old, kind of well, became obsessed with the internet and things like that. Deadspin was this huge thing for me, and, and I think Tim is best known uh, for that. Over the years, he's built this reputation as an online sleuth, right? So in 2013, the New York Times visited Burke, um, highlighting this elaborate uh, computer monitor setup that he has. Now it's in his shed in his backyard. If he ever took an old Seminole Heights uh, home tour, 
Uh, you probably <laughs> saw it. But the New York Times, they described it as this, right? Um, he works from home in what his colleagues call the Burke Pewter uh, for its seamless integration of man and machine. <laughs> and, and, and you can't see the picture right now, but basically it's this huge wall of all kinds of different sizes of screens, all these different feeds. Um, and he kind of takes all, all that in. At the time, the Times said he sits back there for about 100 hours a week. I, I think he would still be on there, but I feel like I saw him around more, especially um, with the campaign. So he's plugged into What he's into doing is thing. constantly recording all of this stuff and then <clears throat> highlighting uh, little nuggets sometimes that sometimes might have they're been controversial, lost, yeah. but often are interesting and controversial. And sometimes they're hilarious, like some of the sports bloopers and stuff right. that he finds. Um, he definitely, I don't know if sports fans remember when uh, last year there was, I think it was against Oakland A's, there was a uh, hit by pitch and it just bounced off the guy's butt in a very dramatic way. Mm-hmm. It was butt ball and that was immortalized on Burke's feed, but so were uh, different political things and, and things like that. So that's kind of the realm that he works in. And then um, on Netflix, I think it was two years, or last year, uh, they had a two-part special called Untold, uh, The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist. And um, it followed Burke and his Deadspin, Deadspin colleagues at the time. We call it the old Deadspin now since the site's been uh, acquired. And they were chasing this this lead on Manti Teo's right. girlfriend. Yeah, Notre Dame star back uh 2012 season, I believe it was. And I don't think you can understate how obsessed the media was with this yeah, girlfriend. I know. It was a, it was such a weird, twisted story. And actually, the documentary is kind of fascinating because it brings it all back. And you go like, wow, we were all obsessed with time. That, you know? But his thing in the story was that none of these media outlets, ESPN, the New York Times, nobody fact-checked as to whether this girlfriend was real. Mm-hmm. So he got this tip out of the islands in, in Hawaii. That's where Manti Teo uh, was from. Um, and somebody said, well, the girlfriend's not real. So he, he started looking up all this stuff. So, But there was an interesting quote, Colin, uh, Colin Wolf, our digital editor, uh, because we have a lack of resources at Creative Loafing, we're looking for a photo of Tim Burke, and we start watching the beginning of the Netflix thing again. And Burke, he has this quote. He says, before I started working for Deadspin, I traveled in some is- interesting online circles, including with Anonymous, the notorious online hacker group. And I developed a reputation as someone who finds things. So, you know, he's always broken big stories. To, mm-hmm. to, to Ben's point, you know, he, he did that supercut of Sinclair broadcasting a video of local TV anchors pretty much reading like a script uh, that uh, was kind of like Trump propaganda um, at the time. So, yeah, so the FBI comes in and they take all this stuff. Um, the day, the next day, I believe... Uh, Councilwoman Lynn Hertak issued a statement. Uh, she said, based on the information we have, it appears that the search warrant executed at her home on Monday was solely related to my husband's uh, work as a journalist. Have and you I seen think- the search warrant, Ray? Do we know anything about what that says? <clears throat> um, no, I've not seen the search warrant. Okay. Um, I have not. Uh, I presume it will remain sealed for a while. Um, I think sometimes those things get unsealed, but I don't think we're going to see this one um, for a while. And then... Yeah, you know what I was saying to, uh, to you right before the show, and again, if you're just tuning in, you'll see the, the skinny here on WMNF. We're talking about, to begin the show here, this raid uh, at the home of Tampa City Council member Lynn Hurtak, uh, although apparently it's the direction, the case the FBI is looking at is her husband, Tim Burke. Um, but uh, it, it may take months before we ever learn anything more about this. Um, I went to the, the Uhuru's uh, down the Uhuru house. Uh, people know them. Speaking of the FBI? Uh, yeah, exactly. So they had a press conference earlier this week, and, and I'm bringing it back to what we're talking about with Tim Burke because they were actually raided 
in July of last summer, uh, both here in St. Petersburg and also in St. Louis, where they also have a headquarters, actually, which I didn't even know about, actually. They're, they're, they're actually live there half the time there. Uh, and that involves this whole issue with Russian interference, actually. And it's pretty... It's pretty out there, the whole, uh, you know, uh, claim by the FBI. But nevertheless, um, the indictment itself did not come until a month ago. So that was like seven, eight months. So in this case with Burke, I mean, it it may take a while, uh, you know, just the way that they work, the FBI I'm talking about, before we get any information. Maybe Tim Burke comes out personally because the Uhurus themselves had a press conference about a month or so ago where I, I think they probably knew what was coming up and they wanted to get ahead of it. And they did hold a press conference and say, you know, we're innocent. And this whole thing about Russians is nuts. This past week on Wednesday, I believe it was, uh, I attended the press conference they had where they didn't actually speak too much about it because they had attorneys on a Zoom screen, actually. And O'Malley Yashitala started talking a little bit about it and he was told, uh, no, hold off, you know, don't get in too much into this at all. So it was more like, but O'Malley Yashitala said this is like freedom of speech, essentially. You know, they're, they're going after, after this for that. Um, and so, again, I think that we may, this, we may not know anything about this for a while. The yeah, way that, that works. Yeah, and I just wanted to be clear uh, in my response to your question, but I've not been able to report on that uh, warrant. You know, it's not been released to the public. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a while. We yeah. don't know. I mean, but, but you're talking about the Uhurus and, and FBI stuff and how long it's going to take. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. Um, and, 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 you know, we mentioned again last week, we, we came on the air last week, a day after the FBI, uh, the story up in Tallahassee with uh Andrew uh, Gillum, the former Tallahassee mayor and Democratic gubernatorial candidate for governor, where uh, the jury did not basically end the trial. And they said, like, we don't find him guilty in anything really serious here. Uh, and that was enormous resources the FBI had put into that case for years. I mean, the case goes back to, like, 2015 or so, him going to get these, you know, New York City, Hamilton tickets, et cetera. They brought, and, and, you know, it affected, it was a major part of the 2018 election against Ron DeSantis, which Gillum lost again by uh, less than a half a percentage point. Uh, and now we hear the FBI, oh, it's not over yet. You know, they're going to come after him. I'm sure they are. Believe me, these guys have a, have all the resources in the world. And I'll even mention this. I, I covered the, the trial in uh, December of Jeremy Brown. Jeremy Brown is a, a man locally involved in Tampa, who was involved in the January 6th protest. Jeremy Brown actually never went into the Capitol. He was outside the Capitol. He was wearing military garb. He looked very intimidating, but he never did. He said that he was there uh, to provide uh, security for the Oath Keepers, and he's very upfront about that. Uh, and basically, they got him for when they raided his house just to arrest him for being in front of the Capitol on January 6th. They, they went into his, they raided his uh, uh RV and they found uh, what they called secret documents, national security documents, and they also found uh, two um, uh, grenades. And that was what they got him for. And he just got seven years in jail. And I covered every day of this trial. And all I'm saying is, like, I, I you know, he, tr- he basically said the, the, the grenades were planted, which, you know, the jury did not buy that. Uh, but I thought he actually made a compelling defense on that, frankly. He certainly made a compelling defense about the national security documents because it was his own work product. He was writing about Bo Bergdahl, if you remember him. Sure. Yeah. yeah, remember that back in 2014? Uh, uh, you know, left, uh, we went we, in the Afghanistan war. Um, so anyway, what I saw, though, in that trial, Again, with Jeremy Brown, the FBI is, you know, and I, I they, the FBI is like a 95% winning percentage in these cases, whether they really Wait, have. Is that a, fact? 
Something like that. that. Yeah. You know, Dan Sullivan, the former, okay. uh, the, the current uh, writer for the Times who covers legal actions, he's the one, he was, we were talking about that at that trial. Basically, the idea being if the FBI comes after you. Um, it's going to stick. It's, it, it's going to be hard, even if, even if you're frankly innocent. You know, I mean, who's to say? You don't know anything about the Burr case. I, I, you know, and even the Uhuru case, I, I'm, I don't really know that much other than what, and what they, Uhuru said basically is you, you saw one statement, you saw one piece of paper, which is the government's case, and they can make it sound so overbearing. And, you know, and so everybody has to be aware of this. And I, I do find it funny, Ray, I was saying this before the show too, because with the whole Donald Trump issue with the FBI over the years, a lot of liberals and Democrats are like fans of the FBI. And that's fine. I mean, as long as they're doing their job correctly, um, in a way that they never were before, you know, now it's uh, conservatives who like hate the FBI and want to defund the FBI, you yeah. know, and I think that's kind of interesting just how that works on public, political level. But I think, again, where we're talking about the Uhurus or Tim Burke, um, we have to let this obviously play out and you can speculate all you want and there's just really not much evidence to, to know where it's going. Exactly. And, and if you're just tuning in right now, you're listening to the skinny. Yeah, we're improvising right now because frankly, and I don't even want to mention our guest because maybe it's just some unfortunate situation where we're not going to have her. So we're going to have Catherine Varn on in a few minutes and we'll yeah, talk Yeah, Catherine Varn is going to join us at 1130. I'm here. This is the voice of uh, Ray Rowe. I'm here with Mitch Perry and Ben Montgomery. This is the skinny. If you want to call in, uh, sneak a call in here. Yeah, 813-239 Nine nine six six three. Can we stick on the Uhurus for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so the FBI raid uh, was on their St. Pete headquarters, uh, and this is going back to last year, right? Yeah, last July. Yeah, uh, but the spotlight really is on uh, this interesting fella, Ghazi Kadzo. Did they talk about him during? Uh, yeah, interesting. You mentioned that, Ben, because no, because apparently he's a former. I, in fact, I, I asked the question. Okay, so there was four, uh, four uh, Uhurus arrested. Um, but they call themselves the Uhuru Three mm-hmm. because this guy you mentioned, who I'd never heard of before, Penny. H- we should say Penny Hess uh, and also Jesse Neville. Jesse Neville, who ran for mayor in 2017, uh, who was uh, I interviewed him here on WMNF actually when he was running for mayor. Uh, they were the others arrested. This other person they don't associate with apparently because I asked uh, Omal Yashatel in the press conference on Wednesday, "What about you? You got three. You're mentioning the Uhuru Three. What about the fourth person here?" And and he mentioned. Akili, uh, you know, who was the Akanian, or now I think she was a different last name, who was a city council candidate 2017 and 2019, and maybe the person that was originally uh, an unindicted co-conspirator because she was not named, but they say this this involvement with the Russians was involving a Tampa, excuse me, St. Peter City Council race in 17 and 19, but she is definitely not mentioned here. So this other person that you asked me about, they didn't even mention, the Uhurus did not even mention. So I don't know if they had a falling out with this person. They did. And what I know about him, uh, and by the way, I encourage you to look him up on YouTube because he's out there. This fella is 31 years old or was last year. He's got a very public persona. He's charismatic. And evidently he was sort of picking up some followers online and so forth. And in the in the late 2010s, he uh, joined the Uhurus in St. Pete. He came down and he was a part of protests here, especially during Black Lives Matter. He was a regular at Tampa Bay area protests from speeches to BLM marches. Um, one time uh, he jumped on a table at the city hall uh, stairwell uh, mural public art project committee in 2016 in St. Pete and made a big scene. So after several years of activism here, Kadzo moved back to Atlanta right. and I think he kind of got shoved out because he was getting a little radical 
uh, down here and also sort of taking some different political tacks online and so forth. But he moved back to Atlanta and he started this odd thing called the Black Hammer uh, which involved uh, sort of some cult-like activity. They all lived together, and they did some military-style training together and so on and so forth. So this thing has a life of its own through this guy, Kodzo, that seems completely disconnected from what the Uhuru's in St. Peter are Is it weird that he kind of came out of nowhere? It is kind of weird, almost... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, like you know, it, that's very interesting you, you have that information about him, Ben, because I was trying to catch up on this case as much as possible and writing about it on Wednesday because I hadn't really followed it that closely because there's only been a couple of incidents. The raid last summer, they had a presser a month ago, and then they were having a press conference you know, on Wednesday, so I was trying to do my homework. But yes, this other person who, again, was not at the presser on, on Wednesday, and they don't associate with, uh, and they're not, they were not referring to him as you know part of their group. They're calling themselves the Uhuru Three. Yeah, so, and, and last year when I was working on a story for Axios, uh, plunging into this, I, I learned that the Justice Department was alleging that Kadzo, who was in Atlanta and has been since about 2018, and the group that he started, which is the Black Hammer, they took money from a Russian influencer uh, named Alexander Vitrakovich Yonov. Uh, so this is according to an unsealed yeah. federal right. indictment. Right. Well, that's the, there was okay because okay. So let me just interfere, uh, interrupt for a second because there was actually an earlier indictment before this new indictment, and that's where this case starts. And they, they right. say it starts from 2014, excuse me, uh, 2014 to 2022 is when this whole investigation has been going through. So go on, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I, I, based on Ionov's indictment and on the social media posts, Kodzo's Black Hammer uh, group espoused some pro-Russian views against Ukraine and used Russian money to try to form an independent nation state, which they were calling Hammer City. Somewhere, they were hoping to set it up somewhere in the Colorado Rockies. And by the way, look online. Look online. There are some funny videos that are sort of the Hammer uh, Black Hammer group trying to raise money uh, for this um, settlement that they had envisioned, Hammer City, out in the Rockies. And they kind of make a commercial where they're asking people to fund them. And they're going, land back. We take our land back. You know, it's um, so they're sort of following that movement. And the notion was to establish like their own nation state out there. So it seems to me like, I mean, just based on the little I know about the St. Pete, you know, the Uhuru movement in St. Pete and so forth. And they, they're all, they're very public. They were public when this indictment first came out and said, hey, this, we are an open book yeah, here. Yeah. This, it was this guy, you know, he's. And he's, Omali did go to, okay, the, the indictment against the Uhuru's is that, that, you know, Omali is told, did go to Russia, right. um, and he acknowledges that. Yeah, so like I can go to, you know, I'm a free citizen. I can go to Russia, and that somehow when he came back, there was something involving uh, a UN conference that they got some money for. Um, it's but the indictment is not, and then there's this whole thing about the Russians are maybe trying to help out the city council, you know, a local election here in 17 and 19. And what I, sense I, does that make? Well, I mean, this why, plays why to it? Mitch's point earlier with the Democrats embracing the FBI in this era. All of this is based on the word of the FBI. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, it's important to note that. There really no is. FBI agents. No, but if there are any out there, uh, we're here every Friday from eleven to noon, and we'd love to have lunch. Uh, oh, by the way, David is a uh, Dave from Tampa is called in. David, hi. Good after. Good afternoon. Good morning. You're on uh, the skinny here. Were we hearing David? There he is. There he is. Oh, hey. Hey. This, um, this, yeah, I found this uh, really interesting with the FBI going after Uhuru. I was curious if, if it's gotten any national attention. 
Do you know offhand? Or? You know, I, I, I scanned a lot of articles on this. Um, it got attention in St. Louis on the NPR station there because, uh, because again, the Uhurus have a, have a presence there. They help build a basketball court, apparently. Uh, and I asked, again, uh, Omal Yashitawa on this on Wednesday, and he was like, yeah, he said, a lot of people around here don't know what we're doing, and we're, we go to all these other cities that we do work. And, you know, so... Um, yeah, so we. it is a really interesting case. They're looking at serious time, okay? They're looking at, uh, on one charge, uh, at least five years in prison if they were found guilty. I think there's a second charge that goes five to ten years. So this is very serious. They have serious attorneys. Um, and, uh, but it you doesn't know. look like, like to me is getting much national. Oh yeah. Play, yeah. Though. No, it's, I, I'm seeing coverage in the Tampa Bay times, uh, local Fox, uh, WTSP, right. FLA and so forth. Bay news nine. But, uh, yeah, outside of that, was the, the national listening? attention might be on somehow we've always had this concern since 2016 or ever of the Russians getting involved with our elections. Right. And that's somehow the thread here. Um, and, and I'm thinking, though, it's a St. Pete City Council election where the candidate at best got 18 percent of the vote. I mean, is that the vehicle that they're going to, like, infiltrate us? But it's a true sign of an up-and-coming city. <laughs> if you have Russian influence in your <laughs> local elections, you got to wonder what's going on in Sarasota. Uh, yeah, we're on the move, on the come up. Well, Michael Foote is very big in Sarasota, by the way, the uh, you know former uh, Trump uh, official. Yeah, thanks for the call, David. Appreciate that. You listen to The Skinny here on WMNF Tampa. If you do want to call in, 813-239-9663. Okay, so we're almost ready to get Catherine on in a yeah, couple minutes Yeah, yeah, for sure. Catherine Varn is going to join us here in about... Uh, I don't know, three minutes. She's probably hopping on uh, a Zoom, and I'll, I'll take a quick break and and uh, and like uh, switch gears here and just kind of give some props uh, on some food news. Uh, it's kind of outside of what hey. we cover, but uh, Creative Loafing Tampa Bay sent uh, Kyla Fields down to Miami last night, and uh, they were at the Michelin uh, Guide a Star ceremony. I mean, basically, it's like the Academy Awards of of the culinary scene, and uh, it was cool to send uh, Kai down there to Lone Depot Park. Um, Wait, why would you send her? Because Tampa always gets overlooked. Well, yeah, so we were snubbed out of stars um, last year. We've been snubbed out of the James Beards recently. Um, but we had we got bib- three Bib Gourmands last year. But last night, uh, three restaurants earned the city's first Michelin stars. Um, Koya, uh, right, a tiny little sushi spot in South Tampa, across from a Sunoco gas station, um, took the first one. Um, and then after that... That, um, John Frazier, uh, he's a New York chef uh, who has a concept uh, down uh, at the Tampa edition down there in Water Street. It's called Lilac, uh, together with his Sue, um, John, John Worksman. They took the second star, and apparently the crowd was pretty rowdy last night, according to Kyla Channing. Uh, Tampa, there was a lot of Tampa love um, down there, and the third star was a- awarded to Tampa Heights restaurant uh, Roca, and its chef uh, Bryce Bosnack, who uh, was one of the three Bib Gourmand uh, recipients um, last year. So, of the four new Michelin stars awarded, um, Tampa got three of them. And what do you think of Lilac? Have you eaten there? Right? I have eaten at Lilac there. Did a New Year's uh, Eve media dine, mm-hmm. um, and I hate you know. <laughs> It's a very orchestrated experience. The, the service is um, obviously every step of the way. They're with you. Everything is explained. Um, small food, you yeah. know, small plates, really nice um, flavors, everything to kind of 
keep your mind jogging and it's all I'm here in the studio, but you know, you kind of experiencing it here in the, in the nose area and, and it really kind of gets you going and you do the wine pairing and all of a sudden you're a, you're a chef talking about all these things and then you think you're an expert. So it was really cool. It was a great dining experience. I think, uh, the, when, when John came here, I asked him, I said, Hey, you have, you've previously won stars. Are you down here to win a star? And, uh, he said, you know, we're not here to Katow, um, mm. to Michelin. Um, but if, if they do give us one, uh, then that's great. And, you know, I, I believed him and, and I also think that he was brought down to kind of elevate that. And now Tampa has reached that next thing, you know, now we have three Michelin star restaurants. I mean, Roca is right there in Tampa Heights across from Armature Works. It's on the end of this. It's at the bottom of an apartment building, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and great, uh, great Italian food. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, the bar experience is, is fantastic, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's really cool for Tampa. And uh, some new Bib Gourmands. Rooster and Attil kept its Bib Gourmand. Ichikoro did. Um, Sami got one. Ichikoro. Is there Ichikoro news? Uh, right now, the, the restaurant is not open. So, um, But, um, you know, the inspector's... Who are famously anonymous? They, uh, you know, uh, upkept the, you uh, uh, retained the bib because yeah. of, of, of the quality of the food that they were getting there. And I don't know if uh, we have Catherine on yet. Um, she's here. Catherine, are you there? Um, so I'll kind of intro um, Catherine. So, like the rest of us here at this table in the studio, Catherine Varn is based in Tampa Bay. Uh, but she's a statewide enterprise reporter for the Tallahassee Democrat. Uh, like Mitch, Varn was immersed in that 60-day session and, and with what felt like, to me at least, uh, a special focus on legislation about uh, abortion, LGBTQ plus issues, DEI, on the death penalty. Uh, our coverage on that was very good. And uh, outside of politics, I should say she's a contributor to a wonderful A24 guidebook or Bible about weird Florida and uh, enjoyed her contributions uh, to that. Uh, she covers real estate, education, environment, and more. She's a, an alum of the University of Florida J School and used to write for the Tampa Bay Times. Catherine Varn, are you here with us on the skinny? I am. Hello. Can you guys hear me? Hi. We can hear you. Hey, Thanks for Catherine. joining us. Good morning. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Of course. Are you back home now? Uh, yes. Back home from, from where? Where from, is home? Uh, ba- back home from uh, Tallahassee. Oh, yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Home is St. Pete. So, um, yeah. And I, I, I was in Tallahassee for like a few days over okay. session, but I didn't spend the whole session up there. I, I did a lot of it remotely. Shout out to the Florida channel, which is like the best resource ever. Absolutely. Right. Um, <laughs> I, so, I was in Tallahassee and sometimes I would, I would just, you know, it's easier to cover it from the Florida channel. You know, just occasionally, but uh, <laughs> but also you, you also had right. You also you had don't like have to get uh, out of bed. John right? Kennedy and uh, Douglas Soul, right? You have a, a team up there as well. Yeah, I have an amazing team. Great coworkers. Yeah, John Kennedy, who's been who's an institution oh, in yeah. Tallahassee, and, and Douglas Soul um, is a, a sharp sharp reporter sharp. from. Uh, West Virginia, who joined us last year, and then James Call as well. Right. He does some legislative reporting and is is based up there. So, um, and and Zach Anderson and down in Sarasota did, oh, some, did right. some legislature stuff as well. And you know he's been covering New College and um, the DeSantis administration um, and done some really great work. So yeah, I'm I'm very lucky to have have a great team with uh with William Hatfield, my editor at the helm. So yeah. And uh, so just before the session uh, ended, Catherine, you had this particularly powerful. Powerful piece and, and Mitch alluded to it. Uh, it's, it. The title of it is Trauma Session, How This Year's Florida Legislative Session Reopened Wounds and Left Scars. And I wanted to read a quick passage you opened with um, uh, 
somebody named Alex Stanwood. Um, and, and you say, then he lifted his T-shirt sleeve, revealing a line of faded cuts. They were scars, he told lawmakers, of someone who couldn't transition. Don't let this happen to another kid, he says. And, and you go on to say, the legislature's heavy focus on social and cultural issues has driven hundreds of Floridians like Stanwood to the Capitol during this year's lawmaking session, hoping to change minds with personal stories and, and emotional pleas. And that's just part of this very powerful story that, that you had published here. And I want to ask you a little bit about your reporting um, around that topic. How tough is it for you to watch some of that public testimony, specifically uh, by Alex, and then reach out to them uh, to talk about it again? How do you approach that as, as, as a reporter? Yeah, thanks for thanks for the question and for reading a passage. Um, yeah, so I uh, it just as I was covering that. So this was actually my first legislative session that I covered like f really full time. I had covered like aspects of it before, but had never been so immersed. So I think part of it is that I went in with a fresh slate and um, uh, and I just, as I started covering committee meetings, particularly for the uh, um, LGBTQ uh, bills and abortion, the six week abortion ban. Um, and for folks who don't know, like bills go through a committee process first um, where they have committees on different topics and um, and lawmakers, you know, can amend the bill or, you know, discuss the bill, ask questions, whatever. And that's the time when the public can really weigh in. Uh, so they'll have public comment portions. And um, so the public comment portions were just heartbreaking. I mean, I just, it really moved me and, and Alex's testimony stuck with me through the whole 60 days, I just kept thinking about him. And um, and and so I, I had kind of been thinking about it and kicking around ideas and talking, you know, ranting to John about it, you know, like John Kennedy about it. Like, like how, like, this is, this is, it's just wild that this is happening every day. You know, people are putting their lives out there on the line every day. And, and, and it's just, you know, doesn't, doesn't seem to make, much of a difference um, in the eyes of lawmakers. They, you know, some a lot of these bills were, were really, really not substantially amended or changed or anything based on, on you know, public testimony. And so, um, I brought it up at a meeting. And again, shout out to my my colleagues and and my boss. Like they saw the potential there for. Well, why don't you start collecting string on this as the session continues and and do a story like toward the end of session just about how how painful and 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 traumatic some of this testimony has been um and sort of capturing that human toll of of these policies that you know a lot of opponents of of the policies and opponents of DeSantis and the legislature you know would say that they're based in politics and and trying to drum up uh you know support for DeSantis's um widely expected presidential run so um, so yeah, that's kind of what I started doing. And, um, every time I would see a tweet, um, of a little snippet of testimony, or I would hear some testimony, um, and colleagues started sending me stuff too. I just kind of kept it all in like in a folder. And then, um, I, the, another great like open government resource is that after committee meetings, um, the Senate and house staff will put up like a packet with all of the public comment cards included, which a lot of times you have to request those. So I really love that that's just available. Um, and I found that's how I found Alex's contact info. Um, and I reached out and he was like, yeah, I'm super down to talk. And, um, and, you know, we, you know, had a, had a, 
good conversation. Um, and so, and so that's another, you know, highlight I think too, is that the, uh, you know, these uh, Floridians who are, are, are so impacted by this, by these policies and, and are, are, you know, stand to lose a lot um, with a lot of these policies are still so gracious and willing to talk and share their stories with the hope that it might help and might help somebody else at least feel seen. And um, I just think that's really amazing. And Alex was so brave and, um, and, you know, great to talk to. And um, there are a couple other folks I interviewed as well. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of how that, that came to be. And, um, and then we, you know, wanted to get it out sort of toward the end of session. And so we did, and here it is. Um, And it, it seemed to resonate with, with, folks for sure it got shared a lot on Twitter and I got some email response and things like that and um so yeah it was a definitely um a fulfilling and rewarding story to work on um but also was was very sad and difficult and you know there were days where I was like all right I just need to take a minute you know um sure for so, sure yeah yeah so we're if you're just tuning in right now you're listening to the skinny here on WMNF we're speaking with Catherine Varn she's a statewide enterprise reporter for USA Today's network here in Florida she's based here in the Tampa Bay area but wrote a story about uh, the trauma, if you will, of a lot of the folks, a lot of folks in the LGBTQ community uh, and others when it came to abortion rights. And and I did, you know, was at a lot of these meetings. And what I really do appreciate about your story, Catherine, is that especially, you know, I, I have a very short staff. We have a very short staff at the Florida Phoenix. And so we were just churning out stuff, right? And you write these um, meeting stories about the committee meetings and then you move on to the next thing. And, you know, you can't take too much time other than throwing a few quotes from some of these people who are, Clearly, um, you know, they really feel their lives are going to be turned upside down by this legislation that's coming down. And, uh, you know, this is, I, I think, really great to have um, a perspective on it and to go out and talk to some of these folks. Uh, as you wrote, I, I have a, an excerpt from that story. Uh, you wrote here in committee meetings, Republican lawmakers who hold super majorities in both chambers often didn't acknowledge the pain expressed by members of the public or explain to those constituents why they were supporting the legislation anyway. Can the chairs at times cut off speakers after 30 seconds or a minute, then call the next name in what began to feel like a conveyor belt of trauma? Uh, and as you write, again, the House, on the House and Senate floors, amendments proposed by their Democratic co- colleagues to lessen the blow of the most restrictive legislative proposals were struck down along party lines, often with no discussion. That's the thing, you know, and, and when I was back here, uh, the mid-break of the session, uh, I remember Ben asking me, like, one of the things about, you know, my my takes on, on all of this. And it was the fact, and look, this is always the case situation, you know, there's a, often so many public speakers and these committee meetings are two hours. Well, sometimes they got, they could be in much later, longer later on the session, but nevertheless, you know, they've got tons of bills to go through. So they could only, they had to relegate people's time to speak from three minutes to two minutes to one minute to, I think at one time it was like 30 seconds and which was insane, but they did it because they wanted to have every the chance to speak who drove from Miami or Key West, you know, I mean, from all over the state. Um, and I, I, I think there's got to be a better way to do this. You know, I, I think it's, it's artificial that we limit this to 60 days when you, especially this past session, when you have so much blockbuster legislation that's really going to affect a lot of people. But, you know, the bottom line is the cast has already died. You know, it's like the, the numbers are the numbers, supermajority versus supermajority. You can have the most compelling argument by a public speaker or a member of a Democrat, and they don't have the numbers, and the legislation is going to go through. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, no, I mean, those are great points. And and that was sort of, um, you know, I, I interviewed former uh, Senator Jeff Brandis and um, and also there were a couple like Democratic lawmakers who weighed in on on this these issues um, who who, you know, talked about that, how a lot of times, especially with the blockbuster bills um, and especially with the bills dealing with very like intense personal, you know, social and cultural issues like the votes are kind of already already you know, fixed from the start. Um, and uh, that, you know, kind of creates I, I, one of the um, a, a UCF professor I talked to, Aubrey Jewett, who's great. Um, he he was like, uh, the rest of it's sort of just like window dressing, uh, democracy window dressing. And, um, and that's tough. And I mean, part of it, you know, it is like how, you know, the political machine works in a lot of ways. And, um, and that was something I was kind of learning as I was going again, being, having this be my first session. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that also came through to, to members of the public who, who were there, who definitely, you know, felt that, that, you know, this just, there were several members who were just like, I know you guys aren't listening. I know you guys don't care. Um, but I'm going to say my piece anyway. Um, or, you know, this isn't for you guys. This is for the, the trans kids listening at home. Like, you know, you're seen and we love you or whatever. Um, and so, uh, it, it does feel, um, yeah, I don't know. Like there's like, I don't know what the better way would be, but, uh, but yeah. And I will say too, like some, like the, um, during one of the abortion hearings, for example, there were a ton of people who who came and it was the last Senate committee stop before it went to the Senate floor. And President Kathleen, Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo um, and the, the chair of that committee had decided together to let to put no time limit on uh, on public testimony and let people talk as long as they wanted. And it took like six hours. Um, but, you know, there were those moments where where the lawmakers did, you know, sort of try to uh, to to give the public a little more space in the process. Um, I mean, ultimately, that bill did pass and was not amended in any substantial way. But um, but, you know, I think, you know, the fact that they gave people unlimited time, you know, was was a little bit of a departure from some of the other hearings I had watched. So so there were moments where and and, and two where Republican lawmakers did respond and say, hey, like you, a couple of you have said we're not listening like I like I'm listening and I have taken everything you've said really seriously. And like, thank you for being here and sharing your story and being vulnerable for us. Um, so there were those moments. Um, but yeah, it it did it did kind of give the feeling of just like Alex said in the last line of my story, just, you know, nothing we say matters. Um, and, you know, I think that's that's tough when we're in a democracy that's supposed to be powered by the people. If uh, you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Skinny here on WMNF Tampa. You're listening to the voice of Catherine Varn, the statewide enterprise reporter uh, for covering politics and real estate and more for the Tallahassee Democrat, part of the USA Today Network. We're talking about uh, some of the powerful stories she's written in the wake of the 60-day session um, in Tallahassee. It's interesting to hear uh, that anecdote, um, Catherine, about Republican lawmakers who didn't make time and that, that marathon six our session, and maybe this is a question for you and Mitch. How much in your conversations with lawmakers, and maybe the ones who did, you know, purportedly listen and take all these things into consideration, were their minds maybe swayed a little bit after that? Did you see anybody's mind change much up there, Catherine? Well, yeah, actually, um, I included this example in the story. There was the bill regarding uh like hemp and delta 8 hemp products uh which are 
my my colleague Douglas is more the expert on that area, but uh, you probably everyone's probably seen the the Delta Eight shops that have popped up and been like legal THC is available here. So um, so it's sort of a derivative of of uh, of hemp that gives you the same high as marijuana or a similar high as, as they call it as diet marijuana. weed. Actually, it's a little bit diet I'm weed. Told, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so so that industry has become uh, really big, and um, and the lawmakers, uh, a Republican lawmaker, had filed a proposal to try to regulate aspects of it. And one of the um, parts of it was like a cap on how much THC could be in the products. And uh, a bunch of business owners uh, that ran these shops and also users of of Delta Eight. Um, testified at a committee hearing and we're like, basically like, this is going to blow up the whole industry. Like, what are we going to do? You're going to put people out of jobs. You're going to take away something that I consider medicine. Um, and one of the lawmakers uh, at that meeting was, said something um, like, you know, you guys really moved me. I've been really moved by this testimony. And then the sponsor ended up uh, taking out the THC cap portion. And so hmm. what was remaining was uh, was some stuff regulating like packaging for, you know, they can't market to children or try to make it, you know, like candy or whatever. So um, so that was a very stark example of like lawmakers heard from business owners and, and users of this product and and did actually were moved to to change the law and or change the bill and take out the portion that was most harmful. Uh, so yeah, that was that was kind of one of the main examples I found of lawmakers changing their minds. Uh, but Mitch, I don't know if you have well, have no, others. Catherine, you you hit the 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 one issue where that actually happened, and I and we I you know wrote a lot about the hemp bill as well. Uh, in fact, when we, we were back a here, show we did a show yeah. back in uh, when the Easter break when the you know uh, we had Carlos Hermida from uh, uh, Chillum, the store down in Ebor, because uh, because mm-hmm. he was very prominent in. Uh, in fact, he was a great source for me and. And, and and let me know where the the hemp community was, as it were, and and my take on that, Catherine, is yeah, I was at every meeting for that, and Will Robinson Jr. He was the uh, the, the sponsor from Manatee mm-hmm. County, and I will tell you, I, I I don't I don't know if we know the full story behind that, and maybe we well maybe again next year. I'm pretty sure it's going to come back next year, and we'll see where where it goes. I think you know leadership, whatever, because Wilton Simpson, the Agriculture Commissioner, was a very powerful person. He was with Will Robinson and the Senate sponsor Colleen Burton from Lakeland when they introduced the bill and they, you know, he, Simpson, I don't think got involved in too much uh, legislation. So it was him, his imprimatur there to show that he really wanted to crack down on these, as you mentioned, the Delta 8 products. And uh, yes, there was absolutely pushback from the hemp industry uh, who said it was going to devastate them. And it was also going to hurt patients so people would get, you know, their, their medicine, if you will, from that. Um, mm-hmm. But the last meeting that Will Robinson was at, uh, where he said, yeah, I'm still working on amending this. He says, but he, but he said, for those of you who think I'm going to, I'm paraphrasing here, but those of you who think that we're going to like get rid of these, you know, limitations, or if you're making your, your money off Delta eight, you're probably going to be disappointed is what he said, you know? So like he was still at that moment, still involved with going to, you know, maybe add more millage limit or milligram limits on, on the, the packaging uh, and the quantities of these uh, THC uh, Delta eight products. 
hemp products, I should say. And then on a Friday afternoon, because I was the, the next meeting was on a Monday, boom, like 445, you see an amendment there, reading the amendment, and I, and it's like, it's not in there. There's no like limitations. And I called Carlos Ramita, you know, down in Tampa. I'm like, are you seeing this? He goes, yeah. He says, we're like, we're all excited. It looks like we're, you know, we're have a great weekend here. This thing's out now. And right. it was just wild. And you're, but you're absolutely right. I mean, that was that was democracy. It was the one time you saw where people, uh, and and, and I, I just think that, you know, there's a lot of stories that won't, it's hard to know unless you like know lobbyists or what have you to really know what goes on behind the scenes. But the fact is 20 other states, more than 20 states have done what Florida was trying to do. And not just with the, um, did not, you know, making sure that people under 21 don't get these products because everybody was on board with that. You know, we don't want to sell this to kids, but the whole idea of limiting the, the, uh, you know, the potency, frankly, of these packages, uh, to, you know, and that's why I mentioned this before, um, the farm bill, which is coming back up for uh, reauthorization, uh, watch out for something on hemp on that, on Delta eight and this bill, because the reason all these states are doing these laws is because it's kind of a, a loophole, if you will, in the federal law. And that's why mm-hmm. it's happening like this. So that's a great example of it, though, as well. Again, if you're just tuning in right now, it's 1149 here on the on Friday morning here. You're listening to The Skinny. I'm Mitch Perry with Ben Montgomery, Ray Rowe, and our guest, Catherine Varnes, joining us on the telephone here. We're talking about the legislative session, and we're going to continue to talk about this next week, by the way. I think we're going to have a, a lawmaker uh, on the on the here that's going to be very interesting. Uh, but yeah, so uh, Catherine, uh, so the legislative session is over now. What, now what, any big projects you're working on now at this point? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm doing some, I'm doing, working now on a story about uh, one of the bills that passed. So doing some like legislative sort of fallout stories. Um, it's the, the, the bill is Senate Bill 254 for folks tracking at home. Um, and it basically, uh, it's banning gender affirming care for trans kids and uh, and and teenagers. And uh, Florida already has a ban on this care on the books that was passed administratively by uh, the Florida Board of uh, Medicine. But this law kind of codifies it into law. Uh, and it hasn't, it, it was passed by the legislature. It has not yet been signed by DeSantis, um, but there's kind of no reason to believe he won't sign it. Um, and, uh, but kind of a, a, a lesser covered and a lesser known part of that bill uh, also very much restricted gender affirming care. And we're talking uh, for for adults, we're talking like hormones, hormone replacement therapy, um, and and also um, gender affirming surgery, top and bottom surgery. Um, uh, and it so the bill included restrictions for adults on uh, to get this care and uh, which is which is important because uh, the governor and lawmakers have kind of made the whole uh, gender affirming care issue and access to health care about kids and protecting kids. And, you know, we don't want, you know, kids to make these decisions that potentially could impact the rest of their lives. Uh when they're adults, they can do whatever they want, but, um, you know, we don't want them to do it when they're kids, basically, even though you do have to have parent permission, you you have to have the support of like a team of doctors and it can take a year plus as as a trans youth to, to even, uh, you know, talk about beginning medical care. So there's a lot more nuance there than kind of how it's been portrayed. But uh, but the 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 bill included uh, a ban on it, it basically requires adults to uh, get the care 
in person from a physician. So if you wanted to get a prescription for testosterone or estrogen, um, you would have to see a physician as an, you know, an MD, a doctor in person, uh, which is kind of similar to what they did with abortion as well. Um, and so that, that in effect bans telehealth appointments uh, and also uh, receiving the care from like nurse practitioners or physician's assistants. And uh, a lot of the medical industry has moved in that direction of kind of, you know, you see an NP or a PA. I know at my my own primary care place, I, I often see the, the nurse practitioner instead of my doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and and there's, I mean, for example, there's a, a, a gender affirming care clinic. Uh, well, it offers a range of care, but that's one of the things they do called Spectrum Health. Um, and they're entirely staffed. It's in Central Florida. They're entirely staffed by nurse practitioners. And so they're scrambling about, oh my gosh, how are we going to get these appointments? Um, you know, how are we going to keep providing people with their hormone prescriptions and the care that they need? Um, and so the story is looking at that kind of how I, I keep hearing from uh, from sources and advocates in that community um, that people are just losing access to their care, having appoints can- appointments canceled, and uh, and are uh, you know scrambling to find okay where has a where can I go that has a physician on staff who can get me this care and um, and so it's you know it's it's a really it's you know again lawmakers have made it about kids but i mean it's really had a very detrimental impact on adults as well uh so i am talking to a number of of transgender adults who are currently navigating this space and i'm also trying to sort of determine okay where are the places that are still um able to offer this care to trans adults and and you know just kind of cover cover that aspect do you have a sense law. of how big that community is so um, the, there's a group called the Williams Institute uh, out of the UCLA Law School, and there they have estimates on on tra- like transgender populations across like across the country and by state. Mm-hmm. And so, according to them, an estimated 111,000 roughly trans people live in Florida, and that mm-hmm. includes ch- uh, uh, youths and adults. I believe the adult figure alone is is like 90 something thousand um so it's not you know i mean we're a state of 22 million people it's not it's like half a percent of of the state's total population um but still that's a that's a sizable chunk of people they've also uh last year through an administrative process as well not through the lawmaking process banned uh medicaid coverage of gender affirming care so that already was um you know if you're on medicaid and like you you don't have a lot of money and so if medicaid is is not an option to like to have it covered then that's basically a ban on your care too so that that you know is has has had a big effect so and 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 you know that's it's a small population but it kind of also um uh really shows how how outsized the focus during this legislative session has been um for for a state of 22 million people um by my count there were like 18 bills filed yeah. to target this wow. population. Wow. You know, yeah. uh, Nadine Smith from Equality Florida called it a slate of hate uh, in terms mm. of all the stuff against. Uh, Do we you have any idea of what, I mean, what what are the underpinnings of, of this? Do you have thoughts well, on this? And Catherine, it, do, do you know, I mean, I, I, I think um, uh, one of the, whether it's ACLU or other groups have, have written about, or, there's a lot of states. I mean, Florida is by no means doing this on, on its own here. Do you know, have correct. an idea how many states are working on similar legislation? 
Um, I don't know how many states. Um, I, I'm sure that's out there, mm-hmm. but it's quite a few. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's mostly red states or, or states with, you know, predominantly Republican government, you know, led yeah. governments. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's it's part of a national strategy. Um, you know, it's I don't it, as far as the drivers in Florida, I mean, I, like there's been reports in other states and national reports that have um, pointed to some uh, national like groups uh, that uh, that are influencing and writing this legislation and trying to, um, you know, whatever uh, religious groups, conservative groups, you know, their sort of agenda is is to to regulate the existence of trans people and and potentially regulate or you know, um, you know, regulate out their existence. Um, and uh, I don't know to what extent that's happening in Florida. I haven't seen reporting to that effect here, but it's definitely part of a trend. Uh, and, you know, I've talked to to opponents and, you know, folks at Equality Florida or, or you know, just the trans Floridians, trans advocates who, who, who feel like this is, uh, you know, a way to unite the base, um, uh, the, the Republican base to sort of, okay, we're going to um, use this, you know, marginalized group as our common enemy and, and, and unite over it. Um, and so that's sort of the, the, you know, that's, that's one belief. Um, and then, you know, I mean, when I was spe- talking to Aubrey Jewett, I mean, he brought that up too, that like these cultural and social issues are you know are very divisive and are get a lot of headlines and so it's it's a way to sort of drum up attention um and support among conservatives voters uh so you know the extent to you know of the national potential national influence in florida um i i'm not sure what all the mechanics of that look like or or to what extent that exists but it's definitely in line with what's happening in other states and we're really seeing some similar things play out all over the country uh and and yeah, that's sort of the 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 context, I guess, uh, the nationwide context. Yeah, and I know we're getting a little bit short on time here. You mentioned something about how these kind of issues grab headlines. Uh, not to get too insidery, but what do those conversations look like for you in your newsroom? As far as hey, it's news, but we're covering it. Is there anything else we can do, or is it just what we have to cover because it is what the legislature is making the mo- most noise about? Are, are we as journalists being as responsible as we possibly can be? Uh, by really latching on to these issues, you know, that affect, you know, such a small but important, you know, section of of the population. Like, you know, are are we being responsible running these headlines? I don't know if we can answer that question in a minute. Yeah, I have so many thoughts on this. Um, But it's definitely something I think about a lot and talk about with my editor a lot. And, you know, what we've sort of come down to is, uh, is, you know, it is the legislature is, is focusing on this small subset of the population and, uh, and that's that's significant to you know. There's an argument that by by covering these issues, you're giving them more attention and and sort of feeding into uh, feeding into the that narrative. But I think the most important thing we can do as journalists, and I think that's something I you know I, I've tried to do and 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 hopefully have you know done is is provide context and and also fact check what what these lawmakers and 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 the governor are saying you know a lot of like the rhetoric around trans people is just flat out false it's not accurate to what's actually happening and what the trans lived experience is and i think the most important thing we can do is challenge you know cover these issues 
uh, and within that coverage, challenge the narratives that are being put forth by leaders and and provide some accuracy and context and human voices and to the these truth. issues. Yeah, and yeah, tell the truth. That's uh, the voice of Catherine Varnes, statewide enterprise reporter for the Tallahassee Democrat and Thank USA you, Today Network. Thank you so much for your hard work, Catherine, and for making time for us. And um, yeah, hopefully we get to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, guys. I, I, I appreciate you letting me talk about this work and get the word out I'll about these issues. Up. Great. Yeah. All right, absolutely. Thank you so much, Catherine Varnes. So that is it, guys. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening in. Uh, our guest, uh, she did call in a few minutes ago, uh, and there was just a problem there. We'll get her on the program. Uh, it makes me hesitant to even announce who we're going to have on next week because I hate when this happens, right? So uh, ho- hopefully we'll have a very prominent lawmaker on the show next week. Again, as we debrief about what was really historic legislative session. Oh, you got to get out of here. You're listening to WNO Tampa.